Welcome to Exhale Bible Discovery. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into the Bible, going line by line and chapter by chapter to discover the truths that God has for us in His Word. everyone. We are now in Exhale Bible Discovery, and we're studying the book of John. Where we left off in the last lesson was Jesus teaching truth and that he is truth. And today we're going to dive into this beautiful chapter nine and learn a fantastic lesson about being spiritually enlightened and being spiritually blind. So I have this in two sections. First one, Dark to light, that's verses 1 through 12. And then, and just the opposite, part 2 is light to dark, verses 13 through 41. You guys, when I was studying for this and really looking into chapter 9, there are some really amazing truths that I learned that I think are going to just completely wow you today. So buckle up and let's dive in to this wonderful chapter 9. Because it does appear that Jesus is still in Jerusalem. And what a perfect segue into the story of the blind man, as Jesus had just talked about being the light of the world. And the feast of the tabernacles had just occurred, and in chapter 8 ended with Jesus slipping away when the Jews wanted to stone him. So chapter 9 opens with Jesus who saw a blind man from birth. And we can surmise that perhaps this blind man was one of the beggars at the temple gates. The fact that Jesus saw this man speaks volumes of who Jesus was. Compassionate, caring, paying attention to those in need, and obviously seeing this man's physical and his spiritual condition. And the disciples immediately asked Jesus if this man's parents had sinned, thus implying a generational sin. Because in those days, it was very common for Jewish believers to think that the sins of a parent were passed on to the following generations. In Exodus 34-7, it states, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to a third and fourth generation. This long-held belief is still held. And today... We know in the laws of heredity and genetics that there is, in fact, many instances of genetic disorders that are passed along generationally. As a result of sin entering the world, the pure and unaltered DNA of Adam has since been polluted by toxins, genetic mutations, and by personal choices. And so because I'm a student of biology, this is an area that fascinates me so much, in fact, that I have an entire chapter in my book, Theosynthesis Live Today, on this topic called epigenetics. And because the questions that are posed here by the disciples, this is a perfect place to discuss this genetic specialty. 
what the study of epigenetics is, it's an emerging science, and it's important for us to understand as we continue to learn about the incredible complexities deep within each of us. And as the study of epigenetics has been uncovered, what we eat, how we sleep, the things we are exposed to, tragedies, illnesses, injuries, they all affect us down to a genetic level. It's fascinating. And back in 1942, a few scientists began looking into the hypothesis of the study of genetics with developmental biology. And later, this evolved into the study of epigenetics. And the word comes from the Greek word epigenesis, meaning the development of something. Well, I was fortunate to hear a talk by Dr. Tom Reed in the Woodlands, Texas, a while back on this topic. And he explained that because of the toxins, the many more toxins in our environment, the type of food that we consume, that there definitely are genetic changes occurring, and sadly, at an alarming rate. And he made the analogy that these toxins create epigenetic tags or markers within our genes. So cigarette smoke, for example, can cause over 50,000 genetic mutations. And the evidence is there that supports syndromes in newborn infants as a result of the effects of smoking, alcohol, and drug use. Epigenetic studies show that not only are these babies affected at birth, but many will have lifelong genetic alterations because of these choices by one or both of the parents, and even from earlier generations. Therefore, what your mother ate, drank, exposed herself to, as well as the biological father and the grandparents, it will affect children and grandchildren. Women are not the only responsible parties, because we know it takes a sperm and an egg to create life, and therefore, both the male and the female genes are passed via these sex cells, which create the new baby. If you choose then to destroy your own body with toxic substances, you've got to understand that should you decide to have children someday or already have, the decisions you make early in life do have consequences on your children and subsequent generations. And interestingly, this study of epigenetics is finding that these tags or markers are carried into a third to fifth generations, and it's called epigenetic inheritance. Pretty cool that we already knew about that in Genesis. It's just worded a bit differently, but here we are in this 21st century, and we are just finding out amazing things that actually line up with the Bible. I just love it. I think the more we learn about science, the more it points to God. So it's important to note that while personal choices affect your own genetics as well as the next generation, God shows us in the book of Job that we can each suffer for the good of the kingdom. I know that I can personally attest to God using times in my life where my suffering was great, and he has since demonstrated that he can and will use this suffering, your suffering, for his glory and to strengthen your testimony. Hop over to 1 Corinthians 11.30 for a great verse on this. But it's also important to note that God is a loving God, and he does not desire for his children to suffer. 
However, what could appear to be a curse can be used for his glory. I always say, look at Nick Bajisic. He's the amazing, amazing man who was born without arms or legs, yet he has an incredible ministry, bringing thousands to Christ. All right, so all of that, it's kind of a diversion, but not really. I want to get back to the question at hand that the disciples ask Jesus, and Jesus responds in three parts. First, he denounces the notion that this man was born blind due to sin. The burden of being marked in this manner was immediately removed by Christ. Then secondly, he points to this happening so the work of God would be displayed in his life. So Jesus is showing his ultimate love for this man by choosing his life to have God glorified in this manner. And then thirdly, he uses this moment to remind them that there was work that needed to be done. He knew his time on earth was coming to a close, and there is a light in the daylight and darkness in the night. And he again refers to the fact that while he was in this world, he was this light of the world, and that it wouldn't be there forever, and so they needed to pay attention. Next we see where Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud with his saliva. And while this may seem really strange, stay with me, because I went a bit deeper here, and it's fascinating. And what struck me was the fact that Jesus was making a salve, S-A-L-V-E. And as I looked at this word, I immediately connected the word salvation. And it was one of those moments that just took my breath away. And so I went to the etymology dictionary to just take apart this word, word a bit further. And here's what I discovered. In Hebrew, the word for salvation is yeshua. When you break down words in Hebrew, they're different sections of the word, and they each have a meaning. So the first part is yud, and it means hand. His hands were pierced for our transgressions. The second part is called shin, which means front teeth or one who speaks for God. Vav stands for tent pegs. It looks like a nail, referring to the nail in Jesus's hands and represents the tent's foundation. And back then, a tent meant house and temple. So, very cool there. And then, ayin means I, to see God and to know God and to experience God. And then the last part of that was heh, man with his arms raised. Behold, to reveal. And salvation is revealed through him on the cross. So as you can see, when you go into the Hebrew language, so much is represented. It tells the story right there in one word. So salvation, Yeshua, and Jesus, Yeshua, are just one letter apart. And interestingly, the word slave and the word salve have one letter difference if you move the L. When the letter L moves to the right, we now see a word that has to do with healing. Whoa. <laughs> do you see this connection? Jesus replaced the bondage of sin or slavery 
with his healing touch, with a salve to give us salvation. I don't know about y'all, but that kind of blew me away. Then I wanted to take it another step. Let's look at the word sin in Hebrew, chata. Again, we're going to break this word down. Chet means outside, divided in half, which refers to sin dividing us from God. And then tet means mud, and sin makes us dirty. And then aleph is God. And then the last part, the huh, is to reveal man with arms raised up. And through the law, our sin is revealed so that we may seek forgiveness from God. The man with raised arms is symbolic of Jesus' arms raised up on the cross, which reveals our Savior. Wow, sin divides us from God and makes us dirty, like mud. But through the law, we are made aware of our sin and a need for a Savior. And our Savior is revealed at the cross. So in the word sin, it has the answer of how to be forgiven by Jesus on the cross from that one little word. So a salve, then, is a healing ointment. And Jesus' own spittle was used with this dirt to make the mud to anoint this man's eyes, thus opening them. And the earth, remember, is what God used to form man back in Genesis 2-7. So everything that God does, he does with a purpose. And in these verses in 6 and 8, there is so much deeper meaning when we dig in. And he tells this man then to go wash at the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So Jesus sent this man just as Christ had been sent from God. And then we read, the man went and washed and came home seeing. So obviously we can see the spiritual significance of this miracle. The man was personally anointed by Jesus and received not only his physical sight, but he also received his spiritual sight. And the next thing that happens is now the skeptics of Jesus' day were rearing their ugly heads once again. And obviously, there had been a remarkable change in this blind man, and people noticed. Yet they questioned if it was really the same man. And so they asked him three questions. Who is he? How was he healed? And where is Jesus now? So isn't it interesting that when someone receives Christ in their lives today, many have these same three questions because we should look differently when we are now shining his light. All right, so now we're going to go into the second half of this chapter of verses 13 through 41, and I call this the light to dark because the story shifts from the man going from darkness to light of the doubting questions by the Pharisees. And obviously, these men were trying to negate the importance of this miracle, this gift of sight. And once again, they use the argument that this is happening on the Sabbath. And they ask the man how he had received his sight, and his answer is clear. He says, he put mud on my eyes. I washed, and now I see. <laughs> Pretty simple. But the Pharisees use the same tired argument that Jesus could not be a man of God because he was not keeping the Sabbath. 
They were hanging on to legalism. They were the ones who were actually blinded. Now they wanted to know what this man had to say about that. Here we can see his spiritual blindness now being lifted as he answers. He says he is a prophet. And the Pharisees, whoa, they didn't like this answer. So they turned to the man's parents, asking them to confirm, is this your son, the one born blind? And the parents confirmed that, yes, he is their son, and he was indeed born blind. They also confirmed that he can now see, but challenged the Pharisees to direct the question specifically to the son, since he's a grown man, so ask him. And the scripture says the parents were afraid of the Jews because of the current threat of those with knowledge of Christ, that they would be put out of the synagogue. Times were really tough back then for this emerging body of believers in Christ. And isn't it interesting that we still see this kind of behavior today with those who are afraid to speak up for Jesus for fear of being shamed or being condemned for their beliefs? Are you ashamed to proclaim the name of Jesus? So now the Pharisees go and they get the man a second time and they challenge him to give glory to God. And the man replies with the famous verse 25, I was blind, but now I see. They were doing their best to have this man place the miracle with God rather than Jesus. And they continue asking redundant questions. And the man tells them he's already explained this. Were they not listening? Do you too want to become his disciples? So he's kind of turning the tables on them, asking them questions. And clearly the former blind man, he was seeing a much bigger picture of salvation. He was, in essence, saying that he now was a disciple of Jesus. He got it. But the Pharisees, supposed men of God, they hurled insults at this man. And they proudly tell him that, whoa, wait a minute, we are the disciples of Moses. And they don't even know where Jesus has come from. And the man again, answers brilliantly with, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And he continues to defend Jesus with, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. No doubt, this man was now an ardent believer in Jesus. And again, the immature Legalistic Pharisees continue to insult the man, and then they throw him out. Just like they dismissed Jesus at the end of chapter 8, now they wanted this man gone from them. And so we're going to really look into uh, spiritual blindness, and this goes from verse 35 through 41. And the significance of this miracle is culminated in these final verses. And I love when Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, that he personally went and found him. Jesus sought him out. He knows firsthand what rejection feels like, but he pursues his children, and he pursues you and I as well. And he says to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he replies with hesitation in asking who he was and to show him so he could believe. The man clearly believed, but it was an opportunity to ask Jesus face to face. What an incredible honor for him. And then Jesus confirms it. 
This man is physically seeing Jesus with his eyes and also spiritually seeing Jesus as now his Savior. He believed and he worshiped Jesus right there on the spot. I can't even imagine that scene. And the Pharisees, they still don't get it. They are so spiritually blind and stuck in their legalistic ways, they're missing seeing Jesus, the God of the universe, in the flesh. And then Jesus says to them, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. So Jesus is straight up telling them, because they refuse to see, they are now stuck in their sin. Wow, what a beautiful chapter. And so I've got some challenge questions to how you apply these truths to your life. So question one, so get your journals out. Have you ever felt that God was punishing you for a past sin? And if so, write it out and give it to God, because Jesus came to set you free from this type of bondage. Number two, have you ever shared your suffering as a way to glorify God? He desires for us to turn what could be deemed as an unfortunate situation into a beautiful testimony for him. Number three, have your eyes been fully opened to clearly see God? Write your testimony and share it with at least one person this week. And then four, have you ever felt ashamed of proclaiming Jesus? And if so, what can you do to overcome this? And then five, how has Jesus sought you out personally? Well, why not write him a prayer to tell him thank you? You guys, the book of John is so brilliant and so amazing, and I can't wait to continue studying this amazing book with you all. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you in chapter 10. Be sure to visit my website, drpaulamcdonald.com, click on podcast, and then exhale Bible discovery for self-study guides and resources to support you with each episode. 